Hi, this is Laura. You often hear it said that people cannot be what they cannot see, or as one guest put it recently, we cannot build what we cannot dream. The Laura Flanders Show is all about seeing and reporting on healthier, happier ways of being, and we're dedicated to feeding the dreaming and doing of everyone, regardless of the ability to pay. But we can only do that if those who can support us do. And this fall, we're making it super easy for you to do your bit and make your contribution monthly. For as little as $3 or $5 directly off your debit or credit card every month, you can step up and become a Patreon partner. You'll receive early word about events and extras and uncuts, and you'll be keeping this programming advertising-free and available for everyone. But don't just dream about it. Do it. Make the future we want to believe in real. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the LF show. Now on with this week's show. And this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. When Hurricane Ida hit the Gulf Coast this August, exactly 16 years after Hurricane Katrina, all eyes were on New Orleans' new levee system. The levees that failed so disastrously back then have been invested in and rebuilt in the years since. They didn't fail this time, and you could almost hear a collective sigh of relief. But MacArthur Genius award-winning landscape designer Kate Orff believes that gray infrastructure like levees and floodgates and seawalls can only take us so far. The infrastructure we need, she says, isn't gray, but green. With climate change now a fact of life, We can't indefinitely hold back rising tides, for example, but we do have the capacity to go forward, not fighting nature, but designing creatively, softly, with it. Recently profiled in the New Yorker magazine, Kate Orff's gonna tell us all about the work she's doing with oysters and reeds and willows and wetlands and at-risk communities and people. But first, for a reality check of how things are playing out on the ground after Ida, we're going to go to Colette Pichon Battle in Louisiana. She is the founder and executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. Colette, welcome back to the show. Um, our hearts are with you. Where are you right now? What's top of your mind as we have this conversation? I'm calling in today from North Texas in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We're still evacuated from my home in St. Tammany Parish, um, which is in that southeast corner just before the Mississippi border. Uh, Top of mind right now is really just getting back to our home. We're hoping to leave early tomorrow morning. We've got information that our power is back on. We did stay through the storm um, and we watched the water rise. We watched the wind. It was a very intense um, and scary at times moment, but we were lucky that uh, the flooding that could have been uh, did not happen to us uh, on the North Shore, as we call it. The problem was uh, we were out of power and on day four at about 113 um, on the on the uh, heat index, 
waiting it out wasn't what we could do anymore. So I came here to Texas where quite ironically, my mom evacuated from Katrina 16 years ago and now lives. Uh, and here's where we are today. So since Katrina, there's been all this talk about investing in the levee system and the, the, the tidal control systems that now kind of ring parts of the Gulf Coast. How has the investment been on the community side when it comes to infrastructure? The seawalls that have been built um, did mitigate flooding. Um, but it's also important to acknowledge that the mitigation of flooding in places like Homa, Lower Terrebonne and Lower Lafouche parishes and places like Plaquemines Parish uh, that are outside the levee system meant that some people got as much as eight feet of water into their homes. Quite um, incorrectly, uh, Hurricane Katrina is always sort of linked back to New Orleans as though the eye of the storm went over that city, but it didn't. It went just east of the city. It's important to acknowledge that Hurricane Ida went just west of New Orleans. So both times, the eye of the storm missing that city, the levees were not tested and we shouldn't think that they were. I think the, the narrative is wrong. Um, great infrastructure is not what's gonna save us from a global climate crisis. And what we're seeing now is just the beginning. And if at just the beginning, we're at eight feet of water in people's houses and not really tested around big cities like New Orleans, I think we've got to keep uh, stay alert and stay vigilant. Now, you always make the point when we talk that a healthy ecology is not just about the environment. It's also about law and policy and, and community and people. Talk a bit about what you mean when you say, you know, a healthy ecology requires justice. The truth of the matter is right now in South Louisiana and some parts of Mississippi and even some parts of Texas, the government, corporations, other people are not around. Neighbors are having to help each other. What we need right now are laws that protect the people, not the corporations that are actually accelerating this climate crisis. That infrastructure bill, that reconciliation package, billions of dollars in for fossil fuels. We need our federal government to make laws and policies that invest in our people and our front lines. We have no more time to waste. Now, President Biden came out strongly talking about the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, saying, indeed, yes, we're at code red for the human race with respect to climate Change. And so, folks, we got to listen to the scientists and the economists and the national security experts. They all tell us this is code red. He gathered, you know, electric car manufacturers, unions, um, and also talked about the danger of sort of green gentrification, or at least it came up in the conversation. Talk about what you heard there that was encouraging and what gave you pause. I'm encouraged that we finally have a president who can say climate change is real and has real consequences. I'm less encouraged. I'm worried that we're, you know, giving all of these words, um, but doing actions that are to the contrary. We don't yet have an administration that's putting the people before uh, these fossil fuel companies make their profit. We don't yet have decision makers. I mean, we're watching some of these senators and representatives halt and take out climate portions uh, so that the bill can, you know, the bills that are in front of Congress right now can pass with a, a bipartisan support. What I'm seeing is an investment into ensuring that the fossil fuel company doesn't lose its profits or that we make sure that we stay friends with the very root causes of the problem. But we've, we've got to change. This is not about transition. This is about transformation. It's, it's time right now to consider what does it look like to provide food and housing and transportation and education for everyone and let the profit margins be made 
off of luxury items and luxury things. But the basic elements of human existence and human dignity should not be up for profit, certainly not in the midst of a tragedy. And this green building and the green washing when it's rooted in capitalism, it cannot work. When it's rooted in collective community power, it can save us. There have been, on the other side of the equation, extraordinary mutual aid networks that have built up over the months of COVID. Uh, many of them were there after Katrina, maybe endured and revived themselves to address the pandemic. How are people actually meeting needs that are not being met by corporations or governments right now? And how can viewers and listeners, if they want to find out more, do that? You can't put a dollar amount on culture. You can't put a dollar amount on trust. And this is what communities have intact. We've got to invest in the front lines. We've got to invest in the communities. We've got to invest in the people who know, trust, and love the people around them. You know, I've got a, a neighbor. Uh, people are often confused how we're friends. They have very different political views than I do. My neighbor has been watching my house every day. I get daily updates on what's going on. I ask them if they need me to bring gas back. This is how this is going to work. And it's going to require us to bring our nation together with something not rooted in fear, but rooted in love and abundance. We can do it if we try. We've got to value everyone equally. We've got to get rid of this economic system that is about extraction and not sustainability. And maybe, just maybe, if we act quickly as a nation, this won't be a code red for us. But I fear we're getting very close to that line. From the Gulf Coast, we go now to the New York region, where the remnants of Hurricane Ida did damage too. There, landscape architect Kate Orff was watching the hurricane approach with a sense of deja vu. Kate, uh, you and your firm Scape work on design projects in many parts of the United States, including in Louisiana and New York. When you saw Hurricane Ida this year, barreling towards both those places and others too. What went through your mind? Well, I had a little bit of a flashback to the evening that uh, Superstorm Sandy hit our region. Um, you can't imagine, you know, watching the, you know, the meteorology, and it looks literally like a comet headed straight for your region. In the case of Superstorm Sandy, it went directly up the, the New York bite. Uh, and in the case of Ida, it, you know, came through Louisiana and up and over uh, the sort of central United States. Just this, the tale of these two storms, if you will, just describes how the risk that we face is truly diverse. There is not one kind of, of climate risk in our built environment. There's not just sea level rise uh, to contend with or uh, extreme heat. Uh, we are looking like in the case of Ida at um, a rainstorm that dropped, you know, a just incredible amount of rain on our on our built environment, which we've largely paved over. So uh, we had a very, very different set of challenges uh, in the region here after Ida. Flash flooding, uh, some very tragic uh, deaths um, in my, my borough of Queens, uh, people living in uh, basement apartments, uh, actually that were located or that are located in, in a former lake. So we've covered up much of our nat nature-based infrastructure uh, and we filled it in and now we are living with the risks that we have built. 
This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. Thanks for joining us. My guest is landscape architect Kate Orff. She's a founding principal at SCAPE, a firm working to mitigate the devastating impacts of climate change through community collaboration and regenerative design. She's a professor at Columbia University's Grad School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation, where she directs the Urban Design Program. And earlier this time, I spoke with Colette Pichon-Battle, founder and executive director of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy. She is doing a lot. Her organization co-chairs the National Water Equity and Climate Resilient Caucus with PolicyLink and the five-state multi-issue initiative Gulf South for a Green New Deal. So you're going to want to hear my full uncut interview with Colette, which you can do at our website, lauraflanders.org, and explore all of our audio exclusives right there. While you're at it, sign up for our weekly newsletter to get information on all of our exclusives, uncuts, and commentaries. My next is all about concrete or community and new tools. I say our democracy needs some new tools, too. Next, Kate Orff breaks down why building concrete solutions that go beyond concrete, like Scape's work with oysters, is so important in addressing climate change. But first, here's Making Waves by Baba Brinkman, featuring Gaia's Eye from his album, The Rap Guide to Climate Chaos. All around I see the smoking guns telling everyone that it's going down. We got floods coming up the coast, people leaving homes. Tell me where they're going now. Look around and see the morning signs. Every morning rise, see the snowman times. Well, I ain't waiting for the day I change. What I do today, yeah, I'll be All we can do is watch as it warms Somebody told me that we could reverse it By changing the stuff we buy in stores But the stakes are enormous I'm talking floods and forest fires and storms So I'm thinking that we can make progress By changing the climate of norms The climate of what's cool and what's taboo Cause we've been in this place before It's kinda like segregation in the south Before MLK kicked in the door It's kinda like apartheid in South Africa Before Nelson Mandela walked free It's kinda like gay people trying to get married In the states before 2015 those laws all needed changing and so do the laws we have now only this time the laws are passing oppression down to your grandchild now it's someone in a coastal city in a developing nation being treated unequal because one meter of sea level rise displaces 100 million people but the cultural climate is changing too we can feel that as social animals whether or not your neighbors have them is the best predictor of you so you've just put your finger on it. I mean, a variety of challenges, changing all the time, unpredictable, complex systems intersecting not just with our, our habitat, but our habits of development and housing and where we put people and who. Talk for a minute about how that relates to the point that I hear coming across from you so strongly that one solution, particularly a built concrete type solution, won't be all we need to deal with climate change. And instead, we need this kind of collaborative approach where we work with nature for something that you call regenerative design. 
Absolutely. Um, I, I feel like maybe, you know, 1927 was a seminal time for America. We had major floods uh, in the Mississippi River area, and there was a big movement uh, to build levees and, gray, and, you know, pull and gray infrastructure up and down the Mississippi River system. And that kind of set into motion this approach, which was like, build a wall, and then if it floods, just build it higher, spend more money and more and more money uh, to kind of uh, try to reduce risk by securing, you know, this through edges, through hard infrastructure, kind of like trying to lock natural systems mm. in place. And of course, that is not the way that uh, natural systems respond. And that uh, obviously is wholly insufficient for a climate changed environment where we're experiencing more rain, flashier rain, like more intense rain in many regions, um, where we are facing more extreme heat, where sea, level, sea levels are rising. Uh, and so, you know, the old rules, frankly, do not apply. Am I hearing you right that it would be a mistake for people to say, okay, look, what we've been doing works. It worked with respect to Ida. Let's just pour more concrete. We have to do the opposite. We need to remove, depave, <laughs> and undo many of the mistakes that we've made in the built environment, particularly here in the, the New York region. We have to soften our shorelines. We need to remove um, excess massive roadways. We have to integrate you know, uh, different forms of non-motorized transport into our built environment. And uh, you know, otherwise, flash flooding will simply get worse. Our biodiversity will continue to plummet. We will have uh, more incidents of extreme heat because that is also very related. What I've been trying to do and what, what the SCAPE office has been trying to do in, in many, many different contexts is to try to integrate and sort of revive ecosystems in particular, not just to bring nature back in a kind of a uh, I guess, a nostalgic way. It's really about propelling us forward into the next century with a vision around how people, nature, and society can all coexist uh, and how we can reduce our climate risk uh, while reviving you know, the biodiversity that has plummeted uh, globally. Could we even go back if we wanted to? Is wilding, as some people call it, even an option at this point? Well, I love the term rewilding because, you know, it inspires people. They're like, I get that. That sounds great. However, um, you know, just rewilding uh, for uh, the purposes of, you know, bringing species back isn't enough. You know, I've tried to, uh, you know, be very, very vocal about sort of recasting uh, and framing ecosystems as next century infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? So it's not just about rewilding, it's about thinking critically about design, about engineering, and about this kind of like new hybrid world where we're weaving ecosystems back into the urban landscape where they have been decimated, you know, in places like the New York Harbor, we used to have, uh, I guess it was around almost 25% of our harbor was oyster reefs. And so obviously that number is now at around zero to 1%, but that those reefs, you know, cleaned the water and slowed the water. It's a very, very, very different environment. So again, we can't move back. We have to move forward um, because we have different conditions. Now, let me ask you about what you're doing around Staten Island. You mentioned Storm Sandy and the, the lives that were lost then, including in Staten Island. Um, that drew your attention to an area that you've been working in pretty in a pretty focused way ever since. And your work has reached a kind of 
tipping point, it seems to me, or, or a real historic moment. Talk us about what these living breakwaters are and, and what is happening right now. And will it go ahead after what we've just seen? We're uh, leading a project called Living Breakwaters, which is a sort of a chain of uh, breakwaters that are seeded with oysters uh, with the Billion Oyster Project. And they clean the water, they slow down the water, they kind of take that dangerous wave action out of the equation. They help replenish beaches and reduce erosion. So that protective cushion of a thick beach is there for Tottenville, the community on shore. Um, but they're also designed in such a way to foster uh, critical uh, structural habitats. There's a big social component to the project too. It's really around, it's almost like a community organizing project. It's designed to kind of bring educators to the shoreline uh, and to uh, promote citizen science and the form of reef monitoring and uh, oyster gardening. It's a, it's a different model uh, than what we started with, you know, which is like, let's build a wall and, you know, put a billion dollars and throw a billion dollars in this one tiny thing that may or may not help and that may or may not account for the very dynamic environment that we, we find ourselves in. Let's kind of focus on ecological infrastructure, social infrastructure, readiness, uh, preparedness, uh, and financial tools, spatial tools. We have to use more tools in the toolbox. Right now, we are thinking about the future with the tools of the last century. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, this way is really uh, the way to proceed. The complexity that you describe and you've been describing so far um, is nothing ordinary. I mean, you're talking about a complexity of climate and of coastline, but also of players and stakeholders. How does this actually happen? How, how did it happen in Staten Island? It is incredibly complex. In fact, it's probably too complex at this moment. <laughs> we need to break through the layers of government and begin to pilot these projects as soon as possible because they take time and they take a lot of energy. So Living Breakwaters was funded through a very modest federal grant uh, uh, centered around in innovation and infrastructure. So, uh, so it was funded by the federal government. It is uh, being delivered by the governor's office of storm recovery, governor of New York. And, uh, but it really involved quite a cross section of federal uh, in terms of the army corps, state and uh, local government governance, all kind of rallying around uh, uh, this concept and this intervention because it improves, you know, safety, it reduces risk and uh, it's really investment in, in the next generation. This is a big year though for initiatives like this one. It's a big year for SCAPE, your firm, as you've described it, um, but potentially for the country, um, given the large federal infrastructure package that's in the offing and the, the talk at least about spending trillions of dollars on infrastructure and resilience. Um, what do you think that could make in the way of a difference, that kind of spending? Is there other legislation that you've also got your eye on? And um, what would be your best case scenario outcome of this moment? We have a, a 
you know, dwindling window to, to act. We desperately need a, a very robust infrastructure bill to pass. And we cannot spend the money on this infrastructure bill on widening roads and on carbon intensive uh, forms of infrastructure. We have to do truly the opposite. And um, so I'm incredibly hopeful and I'm hopeful that um, in the bill, in a, there is a sort of uh, language in there around nature-based infrastructure. I'm truly hopeful that these projects can uh, be kind of moved uh, front and center. Also, you know, Laurie asked me about what else I'm, I'm interested in. I, I, I do feel like the Civilian uh, Conservation Corps concept has tremendous potential. So the Civilian Conservation Corps was, I think, what we had in the 30s, right? This time it's a climate corps, is that right? Yes, uh, the Civilian Climate Corps. And I, I, I'm so excited about the potential of the Climate Corps to be tied to this infrastructure bill. That would be a dream job for me, <laughs> which would be to, you know, kind of link these two things up because we do need to invest in, in infrastructure, but we also need to invest in science-based learning and hands-on. I mean, I think about what, you know, the Living Breakwaters Project represents, which is integrating, uh, you know, the seeding of the, uh, the, the reef uh, by uh, school children, eighth graders, uh, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers. And think about the tremendous potential of, of integrating the next generation uh, who want to participate. Colette talked about the ecosystem requiring an ecosystem of justice, uh, along with an ecosystem of a, of a habitat that works. Um, in relation to that, you've talked about the soft architecture of human behavior, uh, which I think would kind of cover policy and, and practice too. Can you just elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? And are there things that individuals can do? We need federal government action, but are there things that people can do to change their habitats, their habits, the soft architecture of our lives? We haven't sort of really broken through in terms of a, you know, just making sure that everyone is aware of the risks that they face in their immediate environment. Um, and then B, you know, I don't think that we've um, invested enough in, in preparedness and education. We also will probably face very, very difficult choices in, in the next decades. Um, I do feel like that's where this kind of soft or that human infrastructure will come into play. We may need to move people out of harm's way. We, uh, we may need to kind of develop a national framework for equitable uh, managed retreat. Um, and, you know, there will, we will need to expand the ways that we're beginning to address some of these challenges and not just say throw billions of dollars at a, at, at a single wall. Well, it is great talking to you. You're giving me a sense of hope and confidence and I can feel your forward looking uh, nature. You say you don't ever give up hope. You never despair. What keeps you going? What gives you a sense that we actually can do this? <laughs> Oh, I despair. <laughs> I despair. I, you know, I just also feel like um, it, it's an emotion that you you have to sit with, but then move through. Um, that cannot be the the sort of final word here. We're exactly at the moment where we have this broad front 
understanding. Obviously, the science has been <laughs> irrefuted for, 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 for years. Um, but at the very moment when we have this opportunity in front of us uh, to invest in eco ecology as infrastructure, to, to invest in the future, to invest in a kind of a climate adaptation roadmap for the nation and for all of our kind of bioregions, we simply have to act. We, we cannot miss this moment. Concrete or community? Well, obviously, we're going to need a bit of both. But if people are suspicious about where money is going in big infrastructure packages right now, who can blame them? A lot of the same big money corporations that got us into this mess are the ones that have redressed themselves as green and are applying for these grants. So no wonder people are concerned, because it's not just our design for climate that's out of date. It's our design for democracy. Our last century democratic design was one in which money speaks loudest. Our design for the future century needs to be based on consent and diversity and inclusion and listening. KQED in the Bay Area recently reported on the community of East Palo Alto, which the scientists were concerned was going to get flooded with rising tidewaters. When they listened to the people, though, the people were more concerned about heat. There are no trees. There's no shade. They're hot. So having listened, they started by investing in planting. Now the community has bought in, is being listened to, is being heard, and they can talk together about next steps. So there's possibility here, but will we make those possibilities a reality? For more information on this week's guest and this topic, along with a suggested list of research and reading links to explore, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. We also invite you to join me every Sunday as we premiere this week's episode on our YouTube channel at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Sundays. Participate in the live chat and often join me with invited guests in a live conversation afterwards. All the details are at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. And I want to take a moment out now to thank our newest Patreon partners. We kicked off our full fundraiser recently, and in week one, we got five new subscribers. So big thanks to Renata, Dan, David, Gail, and Rebecca. You made our first week of the drive a success. So how about it? Why not join those five? If we're going to meet our goal, we need to do what we did in week one every week for the next few. So how about it? Corporate media doesn't give movies for social change the time they need. But we do. The Laura Flanders Show is here every week on TV, radio, and online. And we don't waste time on advertising. We dedicate it all to the people and practices that have a chance of making change if more people get to hear about what they're doing. If you're a listener or a viewer, you spend time with us. Many of you have for years. So how about taking a few minutes to give us the support we need to keep doing what we do? Just a few minutes from you pledging 3 or 5 or $11 a month on Patreon will keep us going, advertising free, all year. So how about it? Join the five, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show and become part of our Patreon producer partnership circle. You are the brick and mortar, the concrete and community at the foundation of the Laura Flanders Show. 
Big thanks to all of our Patreon partners and all of you. Thanks for listening. Till the next time, stay kind, stay curious. I'm Laura.